Today's episode of Opera After Dark is brought to you by Opera Philadelphia. Opera Philadelphia presents the world premiere of Denis and Katya, part of Festival 019. The latest from Philip Venables and Ted Huffman, Denise and Katya explores what makes us click in an age of 24-7 digital connection. Open September 18th. More at operaphila.org. That's opera, P-H-I-L-A, dot org. And welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. Can you handle it? (gasps) I was just on pins and needles waiting for it. (laughs) But I really did think you were going to go with, he's too hot to handle. No, no. No? That's That's too obvious. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, I had to, there's also a finesse to the delivery, the... (laughs) Like Sorry. when you, when you deliver the pun, it has to be like so overtly cheesy. Like you can't just throw it in there. It has to be like you're drawing all kinds of attention to it. Mm. Can you handle it? Perfect delivery. You just Perfect. you want to make you want to make people cringe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You want to make people d- despise you just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm. Are you reading all of that in my face? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's the energy that I'm getting back. It's good. Good. It's accurate. Well, in case you're still not 100% sure who we're talking about today. Welcome to classical music. Mm-hmm. Thanks we, for tuning into this podcast. Thank you for listening and enduring our puns. Our man of the hour or the person we are focusing on today is... George Friedrich Handel or Friedrich Frederick Friedrich, right? Friedrich. It, this it is can already be spelled, going great. It can be spelled a few different ways. And also he's of German descent, and so I'm not sure if you would pronounce it like in the sound of music, like Georg. But <laughs> <laughs> right. Georg Friedrich Handel. Handel. So, I do think that I mean he did become a British citizen though, right? He did. He did. So mm-hmm. saying saying George Friedrich Handel is very common. Right, because it's probably right. how everyone in England refer to him. Correct. And I feel like that's like saying Handel is appropriate, even though you would think it would be Handel. Mm, Handel. Handel. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm I, not yeah. sure what his preferences were <laughs> for pronunciation. I, I'm, I'm guessing his preference. And once again, I emphasize guessing. Yes. His preference was Handel. I think he was down with the British folk. He certainly seemed to write a lot of music for the British folk, and so I think he really fit in well in that culture. 
Yeah, what are so, the dates, Naomi? Yeah, what's he was, his deal? He was born in 1685, and he died in 1759. So 1685 was a big year. Who else was born in 1685? I believe J.S. Bach. Bach. Boom. And oh, also... Wow. Scarlatti? Yeah. No one gives a shit about Scarlatti. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a lot of keyboard music. That's he amazing. All of three of them in music. the same year. Mm-hmm. Bo- Baroque explosion. Baroque explosion. Right. Although and Bach died in 1750. Sure. So I, I, I loved no him. Right. The only reason I know that is because... The, like generally the end of the baroque period i feel like people attribute that to 1750 mm, yes they do i don't think that's entirely coincidentally the year that bach died i don't know well also if you think about it mozart was born in 1756 right and so mm. like it's interesting to think that handel and mozart did like in exist on this earth for a couple of years yeah, overlap, oh, right? That um, is cool. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So, yes, the era that we're talking about is the Baroque era, and Handel is one of, like, the giants of the composers of this period. He's, like, the, I would say. You think he's more popular and more important than Bach, or? Wow. I, I'm not, I, I, that came out, like, way more accusatory than I meant. <laughs> <laughs> so you aggressive. Think? Do, you, do you think he's more popular than Bach? In the opera world? Yes. yes. Certainly in the opera world. I think more popular, yeah, I think more popular than Bach, just in classical music in general, for one reason. Oh, the, the Messiah. Messiah. The Messiah. Yes, the Messiah true. for Handel or Handel um, changed everything for yes. him. Yes. Right. So he. And if you think. Yeah. Go ahead. If you think you don't know the Messiah, you do. You do. Because it it sounds like this. At least the final movement sounds like this. Final movement. What I was talking about the Hallelujah chorus. Crazy. That's the final. The final is Hallelujah chorus. Well, it depends on where you end it. Yeah, because the whole thing's like four hours long. But you can like cut depending on what time of the year you're doing it. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say the finale that almost everybody in the modern Western music world knows is the Hallelujah Chorus. Okay, okay. fine. It's the most popular part Definitely. of the yes, whole thing. Um, but there are some great other sections of it. There's a lot of arias. So many arias. It is technically an oratorio, which is a like theatrical or a story that is spread over many different movements it's basically as close as you can get to an opera without it actually being staged with costumes so orchestra chorus soloist yes right and and this was like a religious thing because it was uh, at least my understanding is that during the lenten season mm-hmm. it was considered inappropriate to perform opera 
Right. Opera was too entertaining for a period of Lent when you're supposed to be, (laughs) you know, reflecting on the death of Christ, essentially. There are secular oratorios. There are secular oratorios. But England, having a very strong choral tradition anyway, really took to the oratorio. And so, and on top of that, biblical stories became very popular for oratorio in the Lent season because it was like, not only is it not opera, it's biblical too, so it's super appropriate, right? Right, but then they they got like super virtuosic with it. They did. They, Um, yeah, it became a thing. It did, but Handel was like the king of the biblical oratorio. It was his jam. It was his jam. He wrote several of them. The Messiah is the most popular. Um, and contrary to popular belief, or many people think the Messiah is just about the resurrection of Christ, like the death and resurrection of Christ. But as Elspeth mentioned, it's like many, many hours long if you actually perform the whole thing. And it does go through like the whole story. And so it there are parts of it that start and focus on his birth. And mm-hmm. um, so it does kind of span a large period of time and multiple touch points from the biblical sources. Right. So I guess handle. that's appropriate if you call it the Messiah. You should really give as full a picture as you possibly right. can. It's so it's like Jesus Christ Superstar, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. But anyway, He handle. wrote other things. He wrote other things. things. Wait, just let's get basics. Yeah. Born in Hamburg... Lived in Hamburg for a while, moved on to, to England, was a super passionate advocate of Italian Baroque opera. While he was in England, he started three different opera companies because mm-hmm. he was that's a, what you a hustler do. and that's what you did. He was um, really interested in making money. Really interested in making money. And so he wrote nice. all, all these um, Italian operas, Julius Caesar, Julio Cesare being probably the most famous mm-hmm. one. I love that opera, yes. by the way. And then the Messiah rolled around. It was like, boom, explosion, huge, fantastic success. And after the Messiah, he never wrote an Italian or ever German again. or anything ever again. It was only English. Interesting. Was so the, he's like, this is Messiah, where the money is. Was the Messiah originally in Italian? No. No, it was in English. Oh, gotcha. And after that happened and was so successful, he was like, oh, oh well, this is where the money's at. Yeah. I'm right, only writing right. in English from now on. And he's also pretty notorious for, like, self-plagiarism. And so... Right. But is that a bad thing? He wrote it. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I do think it's just amusing that, you know, he wrote... He was very prolific before he wrote The Messiah. And then he was like, wow, this is where the money is. And so as he's, like, trying to turn out more oratorios, he's, like, pillaging (laughs) from his past work and incorporating it in a new form. Which, at the time, was totally normal. He wasn't the only one who did that because there was no way of recording these things. Right. And people were stealing from each, o- from each from other. From each other. So it's, not, yes. it's much less bad just to be stealing from oneself. Oneself, yes. He's totally within his rights to do so. He's recycling. Yes. <laughs> he wrote, so in his Aww. lifetime, <laughs> he's how mindful of him, 42 operas, Woo. Uh, 29 oratorios, Dang. Like 120 cantatas, a bunch of organ music because he was an organist, yeah. um, chamber music, some orchestral music. He he was a busy man because, as Naomi said, he really liked to make money. He did. <laughs> and there's nothing nice wrong with that. To, he was a very enterprising in a, individual, one right. could say. be great to live in a time where opera was like a big moneymaker. Well, 
for him, opera was not the big money maker. Oratorio was oh, right, and he also wrote a lot of coronation marches and masses for he, all of the English kings and queens. He did. Ooh, he became nice. very popular for, or today we consider him very popular slash ingenious for water music, which he actually composed for the king because the the king wanted to float down the Thames. And nice. so he <laughs> deliberately wrote this music to be performed on a barge, kind of following the king down the Thames so that he had like his own soundtrack. Wait. So let's imagine this for that <laughs> one moment. Right. So King James. Sure. sure. Yes. Whoever was king at that, that time in England. That was probably let's, in like a King George area. George. Because right? George III Do- was during the Rev- American Revolutions, 1770s. So George the second, George the first. I am not sure, but right, King. <laughs> so um, he's King George the first. Noise. Well done, Kyle. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um. So King George the first is on like a a wooden barge. Mm-hmm. I would assume so. Yeah. On the Thames, which was probably f- filthy, disgusting, like... Smelled horrible. Smelled horrible. Gross. yeah. Sewage just piling <laughs> feces. Well, there was... <laughs> whatever. Disgusting. Right. It's on, like, a wooden barge that's being, like, pushed down the Thames by servants, and he's standing there regally with, like, his crown and his scepter and his little orb. I don't know. Probably like a, draped in velvet. Like, draped in velvet, huge cape, big old wig... And then behind him, <laughs> also on like a little wooden barge. I'm not sure if it was on the same barge as him. It was or probably on the same barge. Probably the same one. But That's a big ass barge though. Wouldn't yeah. it be on a separate barge? Because isn't it like a, not a whole orchestra. Well, I doubt it was a it's whole not a orchestra. Very large. It probably, it's not a yeah. large orchestra at that time. Or like a chamber orchestra, yeah. string quartet. Yeah. On a barge, which is basically like a wooden plank. <laughs> well, it's a, 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 large, a large boat. It's a boat. Yeah, don't so, don't forget that during this time, like London was a pretty big shipping city. Like the Thames is a river, but it, part of the reason that London grew so big is because it's a river that large shipping boats could make it a very long way up. True. I just think this would probably be. A semi-ridiculous sight. You would think. Well, oh, it was totally. kind of designed to be extremely lavish and like catch attention. It was. It was like an event that the king was floating down the Thames with an orchestra, mm. nice. serenading him. And it was also, if you think about it, kind of designed so that by the t- like it's repetitive in the musical ideas, partially because if you think of it like a parade. Like, you know, after five minutes, it's a totally different crowd that's hearing <laughs> the music, right? So, no, so, that's true. That's true. And so there's part of it that's designed to to kind of flow in this way that there's repetitive musical ideas and that it will sound good and interesting to people as he's going down. And it must have been quite the sight to, like, stand at the edge of the river and watch the king float down the middle in a, yeah. in a boat with his own orchestra. But, totally. Do, you, yeah. do, we, do we have a sample Oh, do we ever. Yes, of course. Oh, hell yeah.
But Kyle, I I want to hear about your own personal experience with the music of Handel. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, longtime listeners of this podcast will know I'm not a big fan of Baroque music generally. <laughs> I have been known to refer to the harpsichord, which is a keyboard instrument popular of the Baroque period, mm-hmm. as a banjo-like <laughs> instrument. <laughs> Very difficult to keep in tune. Yeah. It's just no. you have no dynamic range. With It's like a no. piano without any dynamic range. Well, the mechanism strings. is very different than a piano. Instead of right. hitting the string, there's no hammer to hit. It's actually like an arm that jumps up and plucks. <laughs> so. Right, exactly. Still a keyboard instrument is not, to me, as pleasing as the piano. I find the piano to be a very pleasing instrument. Mm-hmm. So in any case, the, the style, like Handel really had some work to do, and as far as I'm concerned, in overcoming just that style. Hmm. I have, there are examples of Handel's music that I do quite enjoy. Like all the other basic bitches, I do love the Messiah. Like mm-hmm. that's that's some good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I have run into a couple of arias by Handel that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. But by and large, his music is so repetitive that I get really turned off and I that really came to a head this past summer mm. seeing Orlando at San Francisco Opera which <laughs> was beautifully sung in a cast led by Sasha Cook mm-hmm. in a production that I found to be interesting mm-hmm. set in post-World War II mm-hmm. but oh my gosh the, like the opera like the first 35 minutes of the opera i thought wow i'm i'm really enjoying this this is amazing like i really did not think i would enjoy this that much but then you realize oh gosh this whole thing is just similar sounding arias that are strung together with very little and boring sounding recitative And the arias aren't even that dynamic. It's just like one person standing on the stage singing about how they feel. And there's not a lot of action. <laughs> I just was not into it. In in a small section, it's lovely. It sounds really great. But to sit through a whole three and a half hour opera of Handel music, it's not my jam. So I was I was with Kyle at this performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was my first first time seeing Orlando like I had no context for it whatsoever other than I do really like Giulio Cesare by Handel and so I was hoping that it would be along those same lines but Orlando all of the tempos like the speed at which everything was moving was so slow and it was like one slow aria after another at least in Giulio Cesare there's a lot of I find there's a lot of variety and so and like variety and dramatic ideas in the music whereas this it just felt like one slow slightly um emotionally charged aria after the other it was all like lamenting is what it felt Mm -hmm. like and i'm usually pretty indulgent with baroque music because i do 
like it, but this was hard. This was, it was rough. I was also not into it. It's not an opera that I feel ever compelled to see again. I feel like it would be so hard to pick out arias and identify like, oh yeah, that's from that one specific Handel opera. Or even, oh yeah, that's from that one oratorio. Is I could do it for Giulio Cesare, but I couldn't do it for any of his other operas. Is Orlando the the one that has Ombra My Foo in it? Is that how it starts? No. No, that's 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 Xerxes. Yeah, that's Xerxes. We always used to call it Aria Thanks for the Shade, because it's literally just about the trees. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's a beautiful aria, though. I do love it. Exactly. There are some arias, arias that on their own are great, but when you just hear them one after the other, Mm. and actually what put it into good context for me was actually Naomi, when you said, it's like the concept of the ice cream aria, where people would go and see the opera, and there were moments where it was generally understood, like, okay, this is a good time for you to get up, like, go get a snack go do something else it, it was not a time where people would all go and sit quietly through the full duration of a three and a half hour opera also not sit quietly in the dark like opera houses oh, were a very social place and there sure. were you know people ate food and they would have trysts in the boxes and they would like gamble yeah, in would. the back and like <laughs> kyle <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's one of like it was the place where you socially went to meet people and so that's also like some people have argued that's why a lot of baroque arias are very repetitive because it like gave people or singers a chance to actually have people hear them right because people weren't necessarily paying attention closely so when they did pay attention they would could get like a snippet of the aria and then go back to whatever they were doing mm-hmm. and you had multiple chances to get the snippet or the main idea but yeah it's, it's a it's a totally different context or culture than how we experience baroque opera today which can be quite trying for some people right and in general i feel like modern audiences are looking for something a little bit different like we're looking to be entertained primarily by what we're seeing and hearing. Hmm. We want to see action or we want to hear something that sounds different from what we just heard. Um, We're looking for a little bit more variety, I think. And Mm -hmm. that's just not as present in Baroque opera. I don't think it's as present in Orlando. I'm still going to make the case for Giulio <laughs> Cesare. I think it's a really great work. It's a good opera. Yeah. I just I'll think like to... musically it's much more interesting than Orlando. Definitely. Much yeah. more interesting. Which one came first? Was Giulio Cesare later? Interestingly, Giulio Cesare came first in 1724 mm-hmm. and then Orlando huh. was 1733. Interesting. Oh, wait. Sorry. No. Orlando. <laughs> Strike that. Reverse it. Interesting. It was composed in 1719, but not performed until 1733. Uh. Look, he wrote 42 operas that can't all be good. Right. Whereas it, that's statistically <laughs> it, impossible. It seems that Giulio Cesare was composed and performed within the year of 1724. 
Okay. So maybe he knew that Orlando wasn't his strongest suit. <laughs> and so he... Right. But then later on, he's like, yeah, Sometimes I'd like to cash in on this. churn stuff out, you know? Right. You, right. Got, a, you got that commission. You got to get paid. Turn True. and burn. We're going to pause for a quick second so that we can hear a little bit from our sponsor of this episode, Opera Philadelphia. The musical moment you are hearing is by Philip Venables from his album Below the Belt. His next work, in collaboration with librettist Ted Hoffman, is the world premiere of Denise and Katja, part of Opera Philadelphia's Festival 019. Denise and Katja is based on a real-life tragedy that played out live on social media. This visceral production examines the vast public response to the events surrounding two teenage Russian runaways, exploring how stories are shaped in our age of 24-7 digital connection. Denis and Katja at Festival 019, September 18th through the 29th in Philadelphia. Tickets at operaphila.org. That's opera, P-H-I-L-A, dot org. Now, we haven't talked a lot about Handel's life because... Elspeth has a very specific scenario or, or event from his life that I know nothing about. So I'm excited that to learn I about this. I stumbled upon that I had never heard of before. Um, so Handel, when he was young, like 18, 19, became friends in Hamburg with this other composer named Johann Matheson, who was a little bit older than he was. Mm-hmm. And Matheson... Um, he his father was a tax collector and Matheson had this great affinity for music and he was an organist and a violinist and he also was um a child like boy soprano well first he started off in the children's chorus of the Hamburg Opera when he was nine and then Matheson okay and then when he was older after his voice broke he transitioned (laughs) into singing like tenor and he would sing like some like female roles in the operas and things like that he got to keep his testes he did keep his testicles. Yeah, um, who's not a countertenor, but when he was about sixteen, his dad was like, "Okay, we're done here." <laughs> For the record, countertenors also get to keep their testicles. Yeah, yeah. You he just was not take a little... Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Matheson was still uh, sort of casually on the side. It's not how he made most of his money still working as a musician and a composer Mm. and an organist and all this sort of stuff. So he and Handel sort of ran in the same circles. They became friends. They're of the same age. Uh, There's this horrible, weird story about how the two of them traveled to another town in Germany because there was this organ position open and they were both going to apply for it. And apparently at that time, um, the way this worked is whoever... um, According to the local tradition, or to secure the job, you had to marry the daughter of the outgoing musician. If there was a daughter <laughs> of maritable age, that was just Ooh. a thing. And uh. apparently, both Matheson and Handel took one look at this woman and were just like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> apparently, Jeez. Bach also no. went in for the position as well, and he also was like, no, thanks. Um, Bach wasn't married yet by that time? This was like 1703. Okay. So maybe not. But it just goes to show you that men are disgusting pigs. Um, Right. But, so they were friends and rivals and they, whatever, loved each other, hated each other. It doesn't 
whatever. They had like a competitive but friendly friendship. Yes. So there's one story that I want to tell. Oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they were in Hamburg. It was 1704, and Matheson had written this opera called The Misfortune of Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. It's obviously mm-hmm. about Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, the asp, death, whatever. Um, and Matheson was actually singing the role of Mark Antony. Hmm. So Matheson was on stage singing Wait. the role of Antony. And he was the composer as well? Yes. Or Handel was the composer? Matheson was the composer. Oh, wow. Writing himself the good parts. Writing himself the good part. <laughs> Apparently he had a very elaborate, uh, Anthony had a very elaborate act three death scene. That's Ooh. amazing. So he's on stage <laughs> doing that. Um, and there was another composer named Reinhardt Kaiser who was supposed to be conducting the opera that evening. Um, but Kaiser was not there. Because, as many people did at that period of time who worked in the opera house, he had a little bit of a drinking problem and a little bit of a gambling problem. Oh, no. So he was not there. Handel, who at the time was playing second violin in the orchestra of the opera, was like, I'll do it. So after Kaiser left, basically in the middle of the opera, Handel was like, that's fine. I can do this. No problem. So Handel steps up. At the harpsichord, because at that time, a lot of conductors conducted and played the harpsichord mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. The harpsichord really formed like a core of the Baroque orchestra. And so right. you can kind of lead from the lead instrument. by playing the instrument. Right. So obviously, this is a very sort of ragtag affair because act three happens. <laughs> Matheson dies on stage. And the, he, wait, the tenor dot. No. Matheson, the composer slash tenor who is singing the role of Mark Anthony, dies but on the stage. Character, the character dies. Yeah, the character dies. Okay, the character dies, but the singer is still alive. He didn't, like, have a heart attack on oh, no, stage no, no, or no, something. No. Okay. No, no, no. Mark Anthony dies. <laughs> Mark Anthony dies. Okay. So Matheson, who was like, I'm done. Right. I can come back to the pit and I can take over conducting because I wrote this opera. I'm going to conduct it. So he goes off stage, tries to get into the pit, and handles, like, what are you doing? No, I'm going to I'm gonna finish this. I'm conducting. And Matheson's like, what the fuck are you doing? <gasps> this is no my bro. opera. Get out of the pit. I'm going to finish conducting this. And so they got into an argument in the middle of the opera, which escalated to the point that they're screaming at each other. And then Matheson is like, outside right now, I challenge thee to a duel. Oh. <laughs> So they take to the streets. Swords were drawn. Oh, no. A duel with swords? A duel with swords. Not guns, swords. Okay. Dang. Um, And so there are two different versions of the story. Matheson, in both of them, Matheson strikes first. He strikes Handel in the chest with his sword. Ooh. But not like he didn't stab him? Handel doesn't die and... There are two different stories as to why. Oh. The more romantic one is that Handel was clutching a beloved score that he was written oh inside his chest, like under <laughs> his vest, and he stabbed the score. But no, um, I have the Messiah here. Right, it was it was the Messiah, right? <clears throat> um, but the more likely story is that Matheson, when he stabbed him, hit like a button in his <laughs> vest. Oh my gosh. So either way... <laughs> They, um, Handel survived and 
there were other people around who sort of broke them up. And you have to realize, I don't know what Matheson looked like, but apparently Handel was a pretty fucking big dude. Nice. I mean, from his portraits, he looks well-built. Robust. Robust. Big bone. So he could take care of himself. <laughs> so this incident happened. People he broke them apart. He can handle himself. He can handle himself. Ching. <laughs> right. Um, and so they've calmed themselves down and had a discussion. And a lot of biographers say that this is one of the myriad of reasons where Handel was like, Hamburg is too big, is too small for two composers such as, as us. I'm going to leave and go to London. To, like, make my fortune in my future. But I had no idea that Handel fought in a duel and got stabbed in the chest and survived. What if he died? But he didn't. Yeah, but what if he did? No Messiah. He would not have had the Messiah. No Orlando. What would would people be playing at holiday time in their symphony orchestra? You know, Handel... Handel's Messiah sing-alongs are like a huge cultural thing. In New oh, York, yeah. it's yeah. like a big thing to have a Handel Messiah sing-along. But um, part of my <laughs> doctoral studies, you, there was this thing that I had to do in the middle of my doctorate called the two-week paper. And Ooh. they don't have to do it anymore, but it was part of the first exam. It was like one of the big first milestones that you get to. And you literally, like, had to draw an envelope out of a bucket or, like, a file folder. It's like sticking your hand in, like, a black bag and you pull out an envelope. And then inside the envelope, there are two topics. And from the moment you open the envelope, you have 24 hours to decide what topic you're going to write a paper on. And then you have two weeks to write a paper without getting any help from anybody. And then it's supposed to be like an assessment of your research skills. And then Mm -hmm. your professors read it and they talk to you about like what you did well, what you could work on, this kind of thing. So the topics in my envelope were on the origin of the tango. (laughs) Not doing that because I know so little about the tango that Mm -hmm. I was like, this is not not for me. Mm -hmm. And the other one was the Messiah after Handel. There you go. Oh, that would be and super so, interesting. You were like wheelhouse. Well, I thought to myself, <laughs> this yes. I think I can figure out something to write about. And you, like, they're intentionally broad so that you can kind of focus in on something that you can justify is related to that topic. And so after I did a bunch of research over the course of a day or two in, to try and, like, figure out what exists out there, what's written about it, what are some interesting things to talk about or to look into further, hypothesize about. And I narrowed it down to two possible topics that I could write this paper on. And one of them was that Mozart wrote, so Mozart went through this phase where he was, he was very good friends with a man named Baron von Swieten. And Baron von Swieten was very into what they called like antique music or archaic music of the time, music of the past. So he owned all these box scores and, uh, and handle scores and he was into like reviving Baroque period music. And so Mozart actually studied the score of Handel's Messiah and he wrote his own, he like reorchestrated it to orchestras of the day. So essentially like in Mozart's time, there were wind instruments that did not exist in Handel's time or did not exist as part of the orchestra or symphony orchestra. So Mozart 
added parts for some of these wind instruments that didn't exist and he reorchestrated it to create a more modern sounding score or orchestration for Handel's music. And didn't know that. Yeah, and he called it Der Messias and nice. it got performed around quite a bit after Mozart died. Constanza used it to try and make money, right? Um, by getting people to perform it. And so I thought, well that's interesting. I can do something about that and then the other topic that i very briefly flirted with but did not end up writing about was the culture of messiah sing-alongs in new york city (laughs) nice (laughs) so they're a thing and apparently sing-alongs have been a thing since like the 1800s for the messiah i didn't know that i believe it I grew up in my high school choir we always had a hallelujah chorus Mm sing-along at every holiday concert and not just sing-alongs, but like when Handel wrote it, he didn't write the Messiah for like a giant choir. He wrote it for an average performing forces of that time. And mm-hmm. then it became huge in England in the 1800s to have these like mass choirs with like hundreds and hundreds of people, which was not what he initially mm-hmm. envisioned. But well, again, the man was practical. Right. He knew if he wrote it <laughs> using smaller forces, it would get performed more often. Right. But you know. What's interesting, I never thought that this thought would come to my mind and thinking about Handel, but I'm getting um, kind of like a hip-hop vibe. (laughs) First, in that, like, Handel is the 50 cent of his time, right? (laughs) 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 Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, 50 Cent, the rapper, was shot like nine times. That's true. And he did survive. And he did survive. And then after that, like, produced and created all of this music. So that's like Handel survived his duel, like escaped a potentially mortal stabbing to then go on and create all of this music. And then the, the the other aspect is what Mozart did with the Messiah, where he basically took a popular work and then re-envisioned it with uh, popular music of the day and, and sounds and instruments of the day. Mm-hmm. Just like when you remix something from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's very, very That's hip-hop, true. if I, I do say, say so myself. I you say hip-hop very classical that's right. right all right that's where we have to end it i think so <laughs> deep thoughts for the week yes exactly well thank you guys for taking us on this rundown of rundown of handel is that is there anything amazing. else we need to know anything else probably i mean there's a lot to know he's a cool there's guy he did know. a lot of stuff he was alive for a, a while he did do a lot of stuff. I mean, you can you can find his music very easily. So if you're unfamiliar with some of his works, just Google around Google and you'll find all kinds of stuff. Yeah, um, it's it's probably worth mentioning. I feel like particularly his operas weren't very fashionable to be performed in modern times until like the later part of the 20th century. Definitely. Like the they fell last... out of fashion for a long time. Yeah. And I feel like people are still sort of slowly trying to revive them like we recognize that Handel is very important in the grand history of opera but out of 40 plus operas 
like how many of them actually come to major opera houses on a regular basis Mm -hmm. not a lot not a lot of them so yeah only one comes to mind right yeah but if you do agrippina agrippina is coming to the the met this season and it's the first time the met's ever done this ever done it and they've done Rotalinda in the past which Mm -hmm. i think kyle would find it similarly slow Mm. (laughs) um and they do i'm sure i would before they've done julio cesare yeah they actually did the glyndebourne production here so yeah it's but that's not that many operas to speak of and i mean if you go to music conservatory you hear ombra mai fu all the time but you never see mm-hmm. the opera xerxes performed mm-hmm. so yeah if you yeah. hear an opera that's named after like a single name and it sounds unfamiliar you should just guess that it's a handle opera <laughs> like xerxes orlando semele Mm. Xerxes, named after the character in the 300. (laughs) Same person. Thank you. (laughs) Right. Exactly. We should do a comparison of those two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd do that. (laughs) All right. Next week on Opera After Dark, a comparison. Just kidding. That'll never happen. Well, with that, we hope you've enjoyed this little tour through some of the exciting points of Handel's life and Mm -hmm. times and if you are interested in buying some opera after dark merch oh my god buy it buy it buy it you can find it on our (laughs) website we have hoodies we have t-shirts we have mugs we have everything yep stickers totes that's at opera operaafterdark.com mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if you're not interested in merch but want to support the podcast you could also go to patreon.com slash operaafterdark or just go to wherever you listen to your podcast leave us a review let people know what you think that helps people find the podcast and then just make sure you're back with us next week we'll have a new episode for you yeah and with that I'm Naomi I'm Elspeth and I'm Kyle thanks for listening you don't get stabbed <laughs> and he did but he survived i hope you he seemed survive like a your spirited youth death duel